0: hello okay. <laughs> um because this, that's what i do i just awkwardly adjust stands uh for a long time anyway how are we doing it's kind of dark back there you guys got okay uh yeah <laughs> jeremy just punched the night air that's good <laughs> so i feel like that must be a good sign um For those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister with RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. Um, And really, like, RUF exists uh, as a Christian ministry to serve the campus and you all, wherever you are, and whoever you are. Uh, We mean that, and we just really want to be a place that doesn't serve one kind of scene on campus. We want to be a place that you can come from any personal background. Uh, We long to be a place that you can... Um, come from any scene on campus, that you can feel welcomed, and you can be a part of the community. Also, we just, even that means about Christianity, like maybe you're not um, convinced, maybe you're unconvinced, maybe you wouldn't call yourself, a believer, you're a spiritual skeptic. Wherever you are in that spectrum, we're really glad you're here, um, and we just hope that you feel um, welcomed and encouraged, and I really just also want to say especially thanks uh, if you're new for taking the time to come, that means a lot, uh, especially this time of year. So, this semester, we are looking at the life of Peter, we're looking at the, um, a series in the life of Peter that I'm calling Stumbling Into a Run. Am I in the words again? (laughs) Okay, I have this, like, now I'm, like, just paranoid, because that happened one time. All right, focus, deep rest. That doesn't happen in the sprinkle room. There's no place like home. Okay, so, um, (laughs) Wizard of Oz. Okay, so... Um, Basically, we've been looking at the series I'm calling Stumbling into a Run about the life of Simon Peter. Uh, For the last several weeks, and again tonight, we're looking at Simon Peter as sort of a uniquely personal view onto who Jesus is. Um, And then in the next few weeks, we're going to transition and look at Simon Peter as a uh, a personal perspective on what Jesus' church is all about. Um, so we're going to kind of, obviously, Jesus will be part of that, but it'll be a slightly different move. We'll move from the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, into the book of Acts and some of the letters. Um, but I really, the, part of my burden about doing the life of Peter is for us not to treat him like a two-dimensional piece of glass, like a window or a lens. He was a real, live human being who shares um, our same strengths and wallows with us in our weaknesses. That is, he stumbles and he runs, and often stumbles into a run, sometimes following after Jesus at a clip. And here's the point. Jesus is um, in his person and by his spirit to the church. Jesus loves Peter, and he loves people like Peter, us. He loves them as dear friends, but also as reliable sources of rescue. And so tonight's passage, we're going to look at the book of John, chapter 21, this we to our last look at the earthly relationship between Jesus and Peter, that person-to-person connection they had. Um, it's a really beautiful goodbye in a lot of ways. Um, John 21 serves as the last uh, meeting between the two. But in other ways, actually a refreshing introduction to the way that Jesus is still at work through his people. Uh, he's still at work through people like Peter and through the church that Peter establishes. And so that's what we're looking at. And that's what we're up to. But before we go more deeply into John chapter 21, let's pray together, if you would. Father, um, I can't even imagine, um, begin to imagine what you know about where we are um, and how desperately we need your words. Um, We need to be fed. We need to be tended. Um, We need to be um, loved. And I pray that you would do that. That you would meet us wherever we are, with you, wherever we are, with school right now. Um, if Davidson's dead to us, so be it. If Davidson's the best place on earth, so be it. And I pray that you would just be with us, because we all hunger and thirst after something more. We all have a part of ourselves that feels unmet and missed. And I pray that you'd meet us. And I pray that you would dwell within us fully. And I just pray um, for your spirit um, to do its work. To do his work, to help us to, to know you more, um, to, be, to for Jesus to be more believable, more beautiful to us. And I pray that you'd show up, because um, you promised to do that in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, like, one of my earliest memories from being small um, is that my dad led me by the hand through a maze of hallways into the inner recesses of a department store named Lazarus. Uh, I still remember like the giant white squares of marble, like tile, and the way that they were like flecked with black, and the way that, you know, there was this sort of ricochet effect when someone wore hard shoes, and it bounced off the walls, and bounced off the floors, and was just kind of overwhelming to a little kid. And I remember that the plate glass window that we would stop at, and then it was sort of this playglass glass window of a shop. And it had these big block letters that were yellow and they were white. And they described the kind of work that went on in the shop. And um, just from the amount of letters on that shop window, I remember it being kind of hard to figure out what the store was called. Um, I still don't think to this day I really know what it was called. Um, but basically, every several months, my dad would take me there to pick up and drop off his shoes. <laughs> um, it's kind of a weird thing, but my dad was like this pretty. It still is a pretty traditional man. He's super loyal. He buys one pair of fairly expensive shoes. He likes even like walking shoes, and then he will wear them until they start to fall apart or get worn down. But instead of throwing them away, he will take them to a shoe repair shop. Okay, and he will get them resold or rehealed, or restitched or um, reshaped with new insoles. Like he does this regularly, all the time. Uh, for instance, my dad owned this like pair of wingtip, black wingtips that for decades he he owned them, and he probably spent as much money restoring them, doing all the above repairs to them, than if he had bought a new pair of shoes. And I feel like really weird sharing that story because that's like not most of our experience. <laughs> like it's not my experience. I mean, just last week I looked at my shoes and said they're getting a little worn. They don't really, they're not doing it for me. And I just went on Zappos and bought a new pair. And I was thinking, I'm going to get rid of this pair and I'm going to go ahead and like, you know, give it away or throw it away. And that's what we do when we want new shoes. We just throw them away. Um, you know, you do the math. You go, what's, what's the use of rehealing or resoling or refurbishing sneakers, for instance. Um, but then also just, you kind of go, I don't even know where a shoe repair shop would be um, for most of us. But here's my argument. I would, I would argue that what my dad, how my dad treats his shoes is much more in line with the way God treats his creation than the, way I, than the way I treat my shoes. The way my dad treats his shoes looks like the way God treats his creation, His this world and his people. In the words of a theologian, Al Walters, God does not make junk. God does not make junk. And God does not junk what he made. God does not make junk, and he does not junk what he made. That is, God is careful, he's fond of what he's made, and therefore he desires to restore us. And this is, like, a really important point to make. Again, this is why it feels weird. We live in, like, this incredibly disposable society, right? Like, I'm reaching for the tissues or the paper towels, okay? I'm not reaching for the handkerchief or the hand towel. That's not what I do. We live in a very disposable age. Um, and we, I guess what I want to say is we see this preference, God's preference for, and his inclination to restore in John chapter 21. I just want remember last week we left Peter, if you were here, weeping bitterly. He had watched himself say and do the things that he had vowed before Jesus and himself and everyone watching that he would never, ever, ever do. He denied even knowing Jesus three separate times in public, the last time to Jesus' face. And then eventually the crow crop, the, <laughs> the cock crows, so I'll get that one right, and it makes, a, it makes a sustained eye contact that you see the cock crows and, G- and Peter makes eye contact with Jesus, the Jesus he just betrayed three times. But here's what's so beautiful about John chapter 21. Jesus' words and his actions with Peter in our passage just several days later show us the way... Uh, that words like salvation don't mean like throwing me away and buying a new and improved and fairly cheap to make Sid 2.0. Okay? No, the way that Jesus deals with Peter in this passage deals with us when we start to fall apart or when we run out or we get worn down is much more like the shoe repairman than Zappos. And that's significant for us to see God painstakingly cleans, resoles, restitches, reheals, reshapes us. And God does this work not so that we can sit on a display shelf. He does this work so we can get moving. He does this work so we can, we can start doing the stopping and the walking, the skipping, the running and the standing of ministry. So that's all very clever. But let me just put this in one sentence, okay, that's much less clever. Jesus restores us from the effects of our failures to love and to be loved. Jesus restores us from our from the effects of our failures to love and to be loved in order for us to love and to be loved better than new. So he's restoring us from our failures in love in order that we might love better than new. And that's what we're up to. That's what we're looking at. And we see this truth in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 17, and Jesus' restoration of Peter. There, Jesus uses these intentional actions, these intentional words, to remind and recall Peter. Okay, And this process is accomplished in three overlapping movements. It's like this detailed description, a blueprint, of a general way that Jesus operates, that he refurbishes the way he works with us. And so here are the three overlapping movements, and they're on your outline in your handout tonight. First, verses 1 through 14, Jesus restores us by old reminders of relationship. We're going to look at old reminders of relationship. Second, verses 9 through 17, Jesus restores us by old reminders of a wound. Okay, verses 15 through 17, third and finally, Jesus restores us for a new call to wounded healing. So that's what we're up to. So we're looking at The ways that Jesus restores us by old reminders of relationship, an old wound, and then this way that he restores us, he refurbishes us for a new call to do some wounded healing. And let's begin at the beginning, and let's look at the first passage, verses 1 through 14, and the way that Jesus restores Peter by old reminders of a still present relationship in his life. Okay? That's what we're looking at. So if you look there with me at chapter 21 on your handout, I'd appreciate it. So if you look at this scene with me, you'll notice that the Sea of Tiberius, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee, it's important to realize that this is not three days after Jesus' death and burial. I want it to be, okay? I want it to be the first time they meet. It's just not. It's not the first but the third time Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. That's what verse 14 tells us. I, for literary and thematic reasons... I just want this, like, restoration to work neatly. To happen the first time they make eye contact again, like in the movies, right? But it happens so messily and so historically, this third meeting, this, like, post-resurrection time. And, like, I just, so, like, before this, Peter has raced to an empty tomb. Jesus has shown up in their, like, hideaway living room in Jerusalem a few times already, walked through some doors, ate some boiled fish, Uh, Let Thomas touch his still open wounds. That's pretty gross. And like a bad Davidson breakup, Peter and Jesus have continued to see each other over and over again (laughs) in the company of other people. And yet, things remained awkwardly unresolved between them. (laughs) Is that every Davidson breakup? Okay, anyway, so... So these less than straightforward encounters serve to propel us to our scene, right? The third resurrection appearance in Galilee is the f- is the one that Jesus promised immediately after he predicted G- Peter would deny him three times, right? This is the one that he promised in Matthew chapter 26, among other passages, that this was the resurrection appearance, that he said he would show up to them again after death. So interesting. So this is an important one. Similarly. Jesus is waiting until his third resurrection appearance to do business with Peter. It's an obvious reminder for Peter and for us that Peter denied Jesus three times. He's waiting until the third time. It's the third denial. Okay? So there's a symmetry there. And here's my question. Did Peter know all this? Like, did he? Did Peter know all this? Did he remember some of this? We're just, like, not sure. I have to be honest. We don't know for sure. All we can gather is that he's got this restlessness, this self-doubt of waiting for Jesus to show up again. And he's wondering, like, maybe he won't ever show up again. Maybe we'll just be awkwardly passing each other next to chambers for the rest of our lives. But Peter goes back to fishing in the midst of that, Um, this time not just with his two kind of colleagues, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, but also with four other disciples in tow. That's what we read in verses 2 through 3. Okay, and look, I have to again confess, I'm not quite sure why Peter goes right back to his old way of life, night fishing by torchlight with these like tapered, woven nets. Um, they're more narrow on the receiving end than the giving end. I mean, Here's the question, like, is Peter just killing time? Right? Is he just waiting on Jesus? He's just trying to get through another night of waiting. Is that what he's up to? Or is he making the decisive decision to go back to where he came from pre-Jesus, is he trying to settle back down, make a living? Is he silently counting himself out of ministry and out of friendship with Jesus? Was that whole Jesus three-year deal just like one more pie-in-the-sky dreamer moment? Or was it one more swing-and-miss in and a life full of swings and misses? I tend to agree with like this commentator, Dale Bruner. While Peter going back to fishing is certainly not evil, I don't think it is evil per se. It's like a gesture of giving up everything for nothing. And we see this repeated in the text. The word used for the amount of fish that they caught at night by themselves is the word nothing. Okay, that's how it's signified. But notice that the story doesn't end there. That would be a great story. Okay, like chapter verse three, we're done. End of New Testament. Um, but like no notice the story doesn't end there with Peter and company they don't, it doesn't end with us and them catching a, a fistful or a net full of nothing. Okay, verse five. The day was breaking. The reluctant, ultimately failed all-nighter in the belt Computer Lab was finally over. Right, and Jesus performs yet another miracle, again in the form of bad advice and a huge catch of fish. Kind of terrible advice, just to go on the right side. Like they hadn't tried that all night. Okay, if you've been with us at all this semester, though or you're just, like, fairly familiar with Peter's story in the Bible, this scene should be ringing all sort of service bells in the memory bank of your mind. You should be like, ding, 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 I got it, something's going on in the back here. Because this is just like what happened when Jesus met Peter for the second time. The first time he called him to be a fisher of men and not a fisherman. In Luke chapter 5. So, like, they're doing the exact same process at dawn, Jesus giving bad fishing advice, a huge full of net, net full of fish, okay? And so John, the beloved disciple first, then Peter recognize the similarities. It's the Lord, they cry out, right? And Peter, nearly naked, covers himself in the worst swimming wardrobe ever, like a giant flowing robe that just t- takes on water, and he kicks it 100-meter freestyle style all the way towards Jesus in the shore. You see, like, Peter longs to see. He longs to be near to Jesus. But, you know, it's so interesting because he's been near Jesus a bunch of times. Like, what changed? Why is it not so awkward anymore? Because the dawn and the miraculous catch in the midst of a hesitant two steps backward, that dawn, that miraculous catch, did what two resurrection appearances couldn't for Peter. Peter. Jesus reminded Peter they're still good. They're still all good. Their friendship has never failed as far as Jesus is concerned. It's not been a failure for him. It's to the point that Jesus intentionally reenacts Peter's call to follow him, on purpose to show him that he's still part of the team. And he seals the deal with a bread and fish meal by the seashore. Verses 9 through 13, a meal that again rang a lot of service bells in the memory bank. Because guess what? It's a lot lot like the Last Supper, and it's a lot like the many times that Jesus fed thousands of people on hillsides, fish and bread, miraculously produced. Like, Do you see how contagiously good news this is for me and for you? It's a a news that makes me just want to swim for it. Okay? Why? There are things that we've all said, that we've all done, that we've all thought that we think have earned us a spiritual demotion. (laughs) Like, this is why my my prayer life stinks. This is why he feels so far away. Doubts, seasons of unbelief, poor sexual or romantic choices, compulsive emotions, addictions, a warpath of wrecked relationships in your trail. But your failure, that failure, my failure, that very failure, They're just not big enough for Jesus. Do you get that? They're just not big enough for him. How do they compare with denying Jesus face-to-face, in public, in front of every religious important person of that time and place? I mean, does it get any worse than betrayal? I mean, that's the reasons that we cut people off. That's why we say people are dead to us. (laughs) Like, look, Dante even thought it didn't get worse than betrayal. Right? Who's, what's reserved? What people are reserved for the innermost circle of concentric circles of hell? Inferno scholars, humanities, ten people. It's the betrayers, okay? <laughs> the betrayers are in the innermost circle of hell, the inferno. The betrayers that wouldn't fly to Jesus, that wouldn't swim for their life to Jesus. Here's the deal. Like, if Jesus can forgive that, okay? If he can forgive Peter's denial a personal rebuke in public, three times, separate times, right after he t- went through the, the wherewithal of getting tor- of tortured and interrogated. Do you see if Jesus can forgive that? Do you see what that means for us? To brow an image in a few words, in your own mind, you got cut. You got kicked off the team. There's that one thing that you think just makes you unhirable, undesirable. But in Jesus's mind, you're not just still on the team. He made you captain. What in the world? That's what's going on in this passage. He's elected you captain in the midst of your failure. Jesus' wounded hands tending the fire, his wounded still bleeding uh, risk beckoning you over to come and warm yourself again by a fire to breakfast with him one more time this side of heaven. These things tell us he will give us something of his life to fill our emptiness, something of his light to drive back the darkness inside of us. A favorite author of mine goes further than this. Okay, He suggests the smell of breakfast cooking on a charcoal fire the dance of sun and water and sky are a part of the great dance that goes on at the heart of creation. That according to the psalmist, this is what makes the floods clap their hands and the hills sing together for joy. In other words, this scene on that shore at that time was a glimpse of restoration, the way things should always have been, the way things will be again. But the acrid smell of lit charcoal wafting on the April winds, okay, that's not entirely pleasant for Peter, okay. It's also extremely painful. That fire, along with the day's dawning and Jesus' three questions, served as old reminders of a still very present wound and yet another source of restoration, point two, for those note takers, point two, okay. You see, in verses 9 through 14, Jesus intentionally stages the timing of the meal, dawn, when the rooster crows. And it's setting, huddling around a charcoal fire, like the one in the courtyard of the high priest. You see, the flaming charcoals, flickering light, and glowing heat are where the denials started. They started with the semi-suspicious servant girl. And then the early lights dawn, its heat and its light are where the denials ended. They ended in a burst of oaths, swearing to God that He doesn't know God, and curses. I'll be damned. To bystanders into Jesus. Jesus stages like a like a stagehand. He stages these reminders because Peter was bleeding out. He's bleeding out. His betrayal is festering. His fear and his failure. His self-reliance and his sadness are only partially scabbed over, and they are still raw. And the only way to give Peter, to give any of us in this room healing, is to gently recognize and expose those wounds again, the wounds we carry to Jesus's forgiving care. That's what we've got to do. Okay. Verses 15 through 17 are like this clinical display of that. They are a display of Jesus's wound care treatment. Okay, Imagine a medical mission, and there you are, Okay, out on that beach. Just look at the way Jesus goes directly to where the pain is. He does not mince words. Verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus is reopening the wound. He's reopening it to disinfect it and to clean it so it can heal properly. He uses Simon Peter's full name to deal with Peter as he is, not his nickname to deal with Peter as he wants to be right now, a rock. And then Jesus asks the question at the very center of everything, all of the behavior, all of the self-doubts, all the feelings of shame. This is the question that's our question for us. Do you love me? Do you love me? Please notice what Jesus is not asking. Okay, so interesting. He's not asking, how dare you? (laughs) How could you? It's not like, are you finished yet, Peter? Fourth betrayal coming up. Okay, it's not like, how do you, do you know, Sid, how that makes me feel? You see, Jesus isn't about scoring points in this moment. His question is, do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus is interested to ask if we're through with comparing ourselves. He's asking us, are you done ranking the degree of your love for Jesus against other people's love for Jesus at Thursday night worship? Do you know me more than these, is this question. Jesus is inviting Peter and he's inviting us as we enter into that scene. Jesus is inviting all of us out of relying on our own abilities on our own selves. It's so interesting. You see, comparison and competition are the chief tools that make us feel OK about ourselves. That's what we do to feel better about ourselves, to, to ease the ache and the soreness of an open wound. We do this even with Jesus sometimes. And that's what I think is so interesting and so intuitive of Jesus to go after it. Okay, So this is why Peter boasts in the very teeth of, of Jesus' prediction of his denial, right? Jesus is saying, you will betray me, okay? And Peter goes, no, 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 no. Everybody else is going to betray you, but I, I will never fall away from you, Jesus. And this is why, like, since the days I was at Davidson, this line has never held water for me. I'm competitive with myself. Okay, we've been saying that for a long time at Davidson College. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm going to say it. You can get mad at me later. Write me angry emails. That's fine. Okay. You can write me a Facebook message if I probably won't check it. Um, look, here's the thing. Everyone says we compete with ourselves, but a recent Davidson Psychology Department study called Resilience suggests this self-competition. And this is all according to Mary Monroe, by the way. It's all secondhand. I have no idea. Okay, But this, this, this study, according to Mary Monroe, <laughs> suggests that self-competition actually comes from estimating how everyone else is doing. Do you understand that? Like, they, they, they've surveyed this. They've, sci- they've su- the social scientifically proven that self-competition, our understanding of ourselves, is our perception of how everyone else is doing. Okay, that is student happiness is tied to how you think you rank with your peers. Okay, however abstract and general that is. And so, in verses 16 through 17, Jesus continues, and I'm trying to continue to therapeutically dig into our hearts a little bit, and he asks the shortened version of the same question two more times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Because this is at the heart of everything. And look, if Peter felt any relief that first time he asked the question, he is starting to get uh, ticked off the second time he asked that question. And then in verse 17, in the midst of that discomfort, we're told that he has grief or pain is another translation for that word, okay? Jesus is asking the same question three times over, okay? He opens up the wound. He cleans it out three separate times to make a sure point. And what's his point? That Peter knows he's forgiven for all three denials. Not one, not two, but three. That Jesus loves him, Peter, that Jesus loves you, that Jesus loves me. There, in that place, at the deepest level of who we are, that layer of ourselves that we hide from ourselves even. Okay, It's that part of us, that substratus self, that fights off Jesus' loving, all-knowing gaze, tooth and nail. It's so amazing. It's at that very layer. It's at all the way down. Three times that we need to know that Jesus died to love and to cleanse us. Even the part of us that gets frustrated with that very act. But this is getting like really abstract, right? I'm talking about substrata for Pete's sake. Like what like what are we talking about? Okay, very abstract, very quickly. So I'd like to kind of make a detour and ground some of Jesus' sometimes painful restoration of Peter into a parallel story. Okay, this might feel less real at first, but it has to do with Aslan the Lion and Eustace the Boy and C.S. Lewis's *Voyage of the Dawn Treader*. Okay, I reread this. I read the series for the first time in the spring. Confession. Okay, but many of you are probably familiar with the story. I wasn't until the spring. But Eustace is an annoying cousin of Lucy and Edmund. Okay, you guys know the story. Um, he gets transported to this fantasy land of Narnia. Okay, and they meet meet up with Prince Caspian mid-voyage, the island hopping in the eastern ocean, okay. doing their uh, voyage of the dawn-treading thing. okay. <laughs> I've always thought that was a... Anyway, um, just to highlight things a bit for us, Eustace is this rude boy. He's snobbish, he's a spoiled sport, he's very selfish, so much so that he runs off by himself on this one island, and he discovers and then hoards... Dragon's treasure to the point where he falls asleep on it and transforms into a dragon. Okay, and at first he thinks there's going to be a quick fix to this; this will go away. But he doesn't change back, and then he gets desperate. He starts flying around. He's got this this armband on his arm that really hurts. It's really tragic. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, finally, Aslan, the lion who stands in for Jesus in these stories, comes on the scene. Aslan leads Eustace to a pool of water where he tells him to undress, then enter the water. And Eustace realizes that Aslan is asking him to cast off his skin like a snake. And so he scratches and he claws at himself. And he removes first one layer of skin, then another layer of sin through introspection, through self-examination, through self-maintenance. And then a third, final layer falls to the ground. And Eustace thinks, I'm free. He looks down at this pool of water, and he still sees a dragon looking up at him. And there's this lengthy pause. Then Aslan the lion comes to him and says, you're going to have to let me do it. You're going to have to let me do it. And this is what Eustace says at this moment to Edmund, his cousin, a detail I'm going to return to later, perhaps the reason I'm using this story first. Eustace tells Edmund, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you But I was pretty nearly desperate at this point. So I just lay flat down on my back and I let him go at it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it, the only thing that made me able to bear it, it was just the pleasure of feeling the skin peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only those times hadn't really hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he caught hold of me and he threw me into the water and it stung like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again is like just captures this so well, the painful pleasure of restoration, as well as a key fact of restoration. Jesus has to do the work. Jesus has to do the work. We can't do our own wound care. We can't forgive ourselves deep enough. We need Jesus to strip us and forgive us, to forgive even our attempts at self-help without him. But as great as all of this restoration is, as great as the reminders of the present wound and the still-present relationship are, Jesus does all of this restoration work in Peter's life, in our lives, so that he might call us out into a new calling. He does it for a purpose, so that we might live out of a new calling, to be wounded healers. And this is our third and final and, of course, brief point. Okay, Verses 15 through 17 again. Okay, Jesus asks the same question with variations to Peter. Peter gives that that question by the way, do you love me? We said that before. Then Peter responds with the same answer with variations, which is basically, uh, Jesus, Lord, you know that I love you. You know everything. You know that I love you. Okay? And then it's like this pointed, humbling call and response. And after each call and response, Peter gives this pointed, humbling command. And the pointed, humbling command is... Three times, feed my lambs, verse 15, tend my sheep, verse 16, and finally feed my sheep, verse 17. And again, there's a lot of stylistic similarity to what's going on in the call and response and also these commands, okay? Uh, but I also want to say that there's more than just stylistic similarity. Peter's ministry, his love for other people, is founded on his love for Jesus. But more than that, Loving other people is founded on Jesus' bigger and better love for us. Do you see how that works? That symmetry is reinforcing that three times over. The number of denials, the number of resurrection appearances, the number of times that Eustace tries to take off his skin, three three times, three times, three times, three times, three times. So what is the primary motivation for tending? What's the primary motivation for taking care of and looking after and leading and keeping honest? Jesus' weakest lambs and his strongest sheep. What's the primary motivation? Jesus' love. Okay? What's the primary food we feed the most vulnerable? What's the primary food we feed the most mature? Jesus' love. But what kind of love is that? Love is so often ill defined. It's like one of my pet peeves in this universe that people use love so loosely. Okay? Is it some sort of emotional outburst up, down, around? Perhaps love, based on the context, based on these verses, looks like an intentional action, an intentional action to remind someone that he or she is still good with you. Maybe it's love that says, you're still good, we're still good. And then you ask them intentionally to do the very same thing that they failed you doing in the first place. That's love. Second chances, third chances, fourth chances, 70 times seven chances. Perhaps it looks like intentional conversation, like asking someone where they're hurting but not healing, or inviting someone into where you're hurting and you're not healing. To remind him and be reminded that you both need Jesus's restoration. To remind her and to be reminded you are never too fallen apart for God to use. To ask Jesus to do the work, to ask Jesus to enter the pain with you, before you, and after you. And look, what's amazing, this is perhaps the reason I used the Eustace illustration to begin with, we find this incredible fitting illustration of what this could look like at the edges of that story. I don't know. This was what was so powerful. I'd heard that illustration a million times, but I had not read it for myself until this past spring. The edges of that story from C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Shredder are Eustace telling his cousin, Edmund, Edmund, how Aslan restored him. So, like, after Eustace relates all the stuff that happened to him with Aslan, there's this amazing exchange between Eustace and Edmund, and it just might be my favorite scene in all of the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, it's short, so don't miss it. (laughs) Eustace's encounter with Aslan has produced some self-honesty in him, self-awareness. And so he says to Edmund, like at the end, almost like kind of like under his breath, oh, and by the way, I'd like to apologize. I'm afraid I've been pretty beastly. It's a great like 1950s British lads apology. I'm afraid I've been rather beastly. Um, (laughs) But you know what's so beautiful about this passage is that Edmund remembers his own encounter with Aslan. He remembers what it was like to be with Jesus. After he betrayed him, after Aslan had to die to free him from slavery, so he says to Eustace, that's all right. Between ourselves, you haven't been as bad as I was on my first trip to Narnia. You were a donkey, but I was a traitor. You were a donkey, but I was a traitor. I can only imagine Peter in the early church forever had the ultimate trump card okay people would come to him and they'd be like i don't deserve god's love i've really messed up and he'd go that's all right you were a blank but i was a traitor i denied jesus three times after i bragged i would never do it (laughs) you know that's what a wounded healer looks like it is healing other people's wounds with your very wounds Telling others Jesus can love, Jesus can forgive, Jesus can use you. Why do we know that? Because Jesus has loved, Jesus has forgiven, Jesus has used even me. How beautiful. How restoring. What a beautiful goodbye between two earthly friends. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you just for this story. For the story of what it means Uh, to be forgiven, to be restored, to be put back together again, to be repurposed and refurbished. I pray that you would help us to believe that that could be true for us, that you wouldn't let us be naive enough to think that we don't need it, but you'd also not let us be self-despairing enough to think that we couldn't have it. And I pray, Jesus, that you'd meet us where we are, wherever we are, in the midst of this week, in the midst of this semester, in the midst of our lives, and that you do... um, the the painfully pleasurable work of restoration. Please, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.